character. And it's hard to believe, but this is already the third week of a fourth week series. Uh, Next week we have one final installment of this series. And then, can you believe it, we will already be entering the Christmas season and our Advent season will be starting. uh, Our our sermon for that will be called The Greatest Story Ever Told. And I hope as we begin to look at the story this year, not through any lens or theme, but just for the story itself, that we can get this contagious feeling for it. So often when we find out this news about somebody, we're quick to want to call our friends and tell them about it. You know what I mean? That, that kind of like gossipy whisper down the lane thing. Like my grandma had one of those prayer chains by phone growing up. I think that was just like an old lady gossip line. And we're so quick to want to tell stories about people when we find out something about them. And I hope that that same kind of contagious passion in us happens when we hear the Christmas story. But that's not where we're at yet. We are in this series character, and we're talking about traits that innately take uh, root in us when we become followers of Jesus. These, these kind of things that are birthed into us, and then we grow into as followers of Jesus. And that has been part of the series in which we're looking at around character development. And each week, you know that I've talked about kind of the character development of a famous cartoon character. So the first week we looked at, you guys remember? Mickey Mouse. Ready? He wasn't originally Mickey Mouse. He was Mortimer Mouse. And, and last week we looked at, right, Popeye, right? And we looked at how Popeye went from like this nobody character in a comic strip to this famous character. Well, this morning we're going to look at another character that I think we all know well. Charlie Brown. Charlie Brown is a cartoon characterized by a person who frequently suffers depression. And as a result, he's usually pretty nervous. He lacks pretty much all self-confidence. We might say he mopes around, right? Do you guys understand this about Charlie, right? He's just kind of this kind of mundane character. Charlie always seems to allow the circumstances or whatever kind of negative things that are happening around him to define him as I trip over a bench. They they trip him up and, and define him in negative ways. Now, perhaps like many of you, perhaps like us, many of you, uh, turn to Charlie Brown around this time of the year and begin to watch the Charlie Brown Christmas story. How many of you either grew up in families that that watch that every year, or you find yourself watching it with your kids every year. It's been a huge tradition in many family systems. Katie and I both grew up watching this movie with our families. It's kind of part of the season on nostalgia. And, and the character's creator was Charles Schultz. And when he kind of came up with Charlie, this is what he said. He said, Charlie suffers because he's a character of the average, average person. Most of us are much more acquainted with losing than winning, he says. Now, Charlie's life is one where he never seems to find happiness. He never seems to find contentment or what we might say satisfaction. And as a result, he always, you can tell, feels like he's losing more than he's winning. Now, on a show of hands, how many of you identify? No, I'm just joking with Charlie. Charlie has kind of actually undergone a lot of character development throughout his life. Actually, when he first hit comic strips, it was in 1948. He was actually just a little guest in a comic strip called Little Folks. 
fact, his character was so minimal that basically Charlie was this prankster, and, it, and, and he hit a kid in sand, and then the kid's friends came looking and said, hey, do you see Mike? And Charlie said, don't see him. But, you know, Charlie had just hit him under the sand. That was all Charlie Brown was for many years. Then, by 1950, Charles Schultz takes out on his own, and he creates a strip that we all know called Peanuts, which Charlie became more and more prominent. However, he wasn't the mopey, depressed Charlie that we know. He was actually, he didn't wear that yellow sweater we all know, and he was known for being happy. And he was known for being a prankster. He was always playing pranks on his friends, and he was always a background character. He actually wasn't central. It wasn't really to the 1960s that Charlie Brown became the kind of uh, popular and essential comic book character that we know as part of that cartoon strip. Now, Charlie's character development went from happy, prankster, background character to dissatisfied, discontent, unhappy in life. Most of us probably follow that same trek in life. We start off in life as kids, full of joy, and, and life is an adventure, and we love it, we take it on full force, but over time, those negative things that we experience, those experiences we walk through, health crisis and, and losing loved ones, over time, more and more, we find ourselves moving from fun and gratitude and content to dissatisfaction, upset, negative, hurt. You and I probably follow that same track very well that Charlie now, in the famous Charlie Brown Christmas movie that most of us probably watch this time of the year, Charlie enters it depressed and discontent. Everywhere he looks, and something makes him feel terrible. In fact, there's this, this decorating contest in town, and his own dog beats the whole town. You know, and so Charlie walks home after he's all depressed, and there the dog, you know, the doghouse won the best Christmas decorating contest. And so everywhere that Charlie looks, like, there's just you know, upset, like he doesn't win. He finds himself unable to find joy, he confesses, in a season that seems overly commercialized. So, as he's beginning to be the director for a Christmas play, and I love it because when they announce that he's going to be the director, because he's so negative, all the other kids are like, Really, Charlie? Oh, we don't want him as a director. Who wants negative nanny over here? You know what I mean? So he, he, he becomes the director of this play. And they begin practicing the Christmas play or the Christmas story, the greatest story ever told. And it's there that he finds his joy return as he focuses on the reason, Jesus, as the reason for the season. He finds contentment once again in life. Now this morning we're going to be looking at how at the heart of who we are as Christians and the heart of who we are as a church community, we should be one that is on a character development not towards discontentment, but contentment with Jesus as we grow closer to him no matter what season or no matter what experience that we are in at the time. This series is all about character development. We've been saying that it's a series sketching out four traits that should define us and our character, both as a community and as followers of Jesus. First week, we looked at honor. Second week, we looked at integrity. This morning, we're going to look at the trait of being gratefully content. 
for me, I think when we are learning to be content, it starts or is at least somehow intertwined with learning to be grateful. And as we're in this Thanksgiving season, it's just ironic that this comes up. And, and, and in all ways, the more we pause on being thankful for what we have, aware of what we have, listening to what we have, slowing down to participate in what we have, the more we find ourselves One of my favorite quotes around contentment comes from Richard E. Byrd, and, and you don't know who he is, and the only reason you may know who he is is because he was an admiral who was entrusted with exploring the Antarctica for the first time. And it was a very frowned upon mission. He didn't have a lot of respect for it, and as he goes in there and loses pretty much everything he has in life, he realizes that he has to redefine what contentment is for him. And he says this, being forced to live the simple life, Bird decided, was very good for me. I was learning what the philosophers have long been harping on, that man can live profoundly without masses of things. This morning, I want us to explore contentment in a way that we can learn to live profoundly without masses of or even the mindset that we need masses. Now, in life, we are always trying to find betterment. That's the truth. That's why Charlie Brown's discontent. That's why you and I are discontent. We're always trying to get ahead and get to the next place and to better ourselves, to just you know, get out of that debt a little bit more to, or to feel a little better, a little more free. I wish we just had a little bit more money so we could do good stuff or, or family things. They're not bad motivations, but we always find ourselves in love with the task of betterment. One of my favorite characters that's always focused on betterment appears in a 1964 movie, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. It's a claymation that maybe you also grew up watching with your family. And this character that you see before you, his name, anyone know it? Yukon Cornelius. As a kid, he was one of my favorite characters. I mean, look at that mustache. That's impressive. I think Josh was going for that a little bit this morning. <laughs> Sorry, Josh. Yukon was like one of my favorite characters. He's just always looking for silver and gold. So I'm just going to play a short clip from you, and we're going to look at it here together. Who are you? Who am I? The name's Yukon Cornelius, the greatest prospector in the north. This is my land, and you know, it's rich with gold. Gold! Gold and silver. Silver and gold. Wahoo! Nothing. Oh, well, now I'm off to get my life-sustaining supplies, cornmeal and gunpowder and ham hocks and guitar strings. I'll give you a lift. Uh, mister, where are we going? You're going to stay with me, and we'll all be rich with the biggest silver strike this side of Hudson Bay. Silver! Yukon, throughout this whole movie, is focused on finding silver and gold. He's always trying to find himself better. Now, if you didn't catch the line, uh, you'll find that he's always wrestling with what he wants and what he needs. And he said, hey, well, now I'm off to get my life-sustaining supplies. Cornmeal, gunpowder, ham hocks, and guitar strings. 
all of us have things that we want. All of us have things that we need. Are they life-sustaining? Do we really need them? Those are the wrestlings that we always have. Throughout this movie, Yukon is just trying to find Rich. I mean, he takes that pickaxe anywhere he goes and just throws it in the air as it lands it, picks it up, and he tests to see if there's gold or silver taste on it. And then the best part of the movie, if you've never seen it, see, he throws it away. He never puts it back on his belt, and he's like, oh, and he throws it away. And then the next time he does it, he somehow has it back on his belt again. And so, you know, he's this character that's just in love with betterment, trying to find himself better. And, and eventually, uh, you know, he, he gets to a place where he's not looking for gold anymore. He's just looking for silver. And then by the end of the movie, he's realizing that his friends, those kind of misfits that he's traveling with, are those in which are the thing he was looking for. Well, that and this other thing. See, he gets to the end of the movie, and he finds something he wasn't looking for. He'll be a hero after this. Yes, a hero. That's my boy. Now, you see how it's done? Wahoo! Peppermint! What I've been searching for all my life! I've struck it rich! I've got me a peppermint mine! Wahoo! So his whole life, he's looking for silver, he's looking for gold, and at the end, the thing that makes him content is peppermint. So many times in life, we're chasing the big things, and we miss that the thing that can make us happy is the little thing. Contentment as defined as satisfaction or an ease of mind, the act of making contently satisfied. And this morning, as we look at this word and this idea of contentment, I want to use this definition, the act of making contently satisfied. Now, in our pursuit of, of, of kind of contentment, there's lots of things that we try to do to pursue it. We try to train ourselves to think differently. We try to kind of try to change our cravings or, or tell ourselves that we're not something uh, sometimes we try to find uh, contentment in things that don't really bring us contentment because we think that's the right thing to do. When I was growing up, I was always in love with uh, communes, like not those weird ones like Charles Manson, but like the, the 70s Christian movement had a lot of hippie communes that thought contentment could be found by living together. In fact, there was one that uh, really interested me. It was called Jesus People USA. It still continues today. It, it, it's in the north part of Chicago. They feed thousands of homeless a day. They have two great towers in which they all live together in apartments. They have apartments in this building. And they have mission together. They have a roofing company. And any money the roofing company makes goes back into the church. And then they use that to feed the homeless. And so I loved it. Man, I was sure contentment would be found in something like this. But there's one problem. I didn't like winter, and so Chicago's all winter. And so I decided that I was going to start my own. In our first apartment, the doors were never locked. There was never less than five people living in there. And we always did everything together. I was on search for contentment by finding it together. However, Richard Foster, a Quaker author, writes, Because we lack a divine center, our need for security has led us into an insane attachment to things. Most of what we look for contentment in isn't the thing that's actually going to bring us contentment. 
only finding, like Charlie Brown, contentment in Jesus will bring us there. I invite you to turn with me to Philippians 4, 11 through 13. It's where we're going to spend our time together. And really throughout the book of Philippians, as you're looking it up, this is a book where Paul is, I mean, he's, he's aging. He's, he's, he's reaching the end. The night is coming. And so he wants to love on the church in Philippi, and he writes them. And throughout this letter, you can just sense this love for him. In fact, those of you who are teachers or parents, you know when a student you've invested in or your kid turns around and does something really good, you kind of get this beaming sense of, of like, yeah, that's my kid, or yeah, that's my student. And that's the kind of mentality we see throughout the book of Philippians. Paul is excited. He calls them, the church, his crown. He says... They are his greatest joy in the midst of this time where the shadows are closing around him. However, Paul doesn't just want to kind of love on them. He wants to also leave them something memorable. Here, in the midst of life when the shadows are coming around him, he wants to tell them that he has found the mystery to contentment. And about this passage, Michael Henry, a theologian, says, it's a special grace to have an equal temper of mind always. And in a low state, not to lose our comfort in God, nor distrust his providence, nor take any wrong course for our own supply. In a prosperous condition, not to be proud or secure or worldly. This is a harder lesson than the other, for the temptations of fullness and prosperity are more of those of affliction and want. And, and likewise, Darby says, My God, Paul says, he whom I have learned to know in all the circumstances through which I have passed shall fill you with the good things. So listen in. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content in whatever the circumstances. I know what it's like to be in need. I know what it's like to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry. Whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Now, we know this verse well, but there are four words that I really want us to highlight. Five words I want us to highlight uh, this morning. I guess that's six, sorry. Content, need, secret, want, and strength. Now, first, the word that Paul uses there for content, we're going to talk about this in a minute, is a Greek word that's actually an adjective, and it's an original meaning it means to be contented with one's lot. This word is an extremely secular philosophical word in, in the time of Paul. We're going to come back to that in a minute. It means to be just kind of focused or self-made, self-okay with everything you have. Now, the other words I want us to explore this morning are this, need. Now, the word for need here is interesting because it can mean any sort of void in our life. Now think about what voids are in your life. It can mean that you're lacking something physically. You're behind in debt. It can mean that you actually feel that you lack excellence in your worth. Secret. Now the word secret here is great. The King James uses the word instruct. I don't know if either of them capture the original text well. What he, Paul says is that he has felt an insight into the mystery of God. Now, I love that idea, that, that he has pressed in in such a way that he can feel the mystery of God. And, and Paul says that I need to be content because, goal, uh, because God, he's not saying I need to be content because God or someone told me to. He's saying 
I need to be content because I've been acquainted with the secret or the, the wind of what it means to be content. And then want. The NIV misleads us here. It says, uh, the war, you know, want, well, what do we think of? We think of the stuff we want. And then so some pre- preachers sometimes kind of wrestle with this. Like, there's things we need and there's things that we want. Actually, the word that Paul uses here is the exact same word for need earlier. And so all he's saying is, no matter what situation I'm in, whether I have it all or whether I have nothing, I'm equally as happy in each situation. Don't get distracted on this being a passage that's wrestling with what we want and what we need. It is speaking to this last word, and that's strength. Now, I love this word because the word that Paul uses there means empowered. I can do all things through him who empowers me. It it literally implies that there's a transfer of power from God to the recipient. The strength Paul talks about here is not in human ability or getting your mind right. It's literally allowing the power of God to transfer contentment into your life and a transforming. Now, like I said, the word Paul uses for content is a highly Greek word. Now, in the area of this church, there's this movement going on, this philosophical movement called the Stoics. And the Stoics are trying to find happiness in life, just like most of us, and they're trying to find betterment. But unlike you and I, they don't enter the rat race uh, trying to own more. They enter the rat race looking for betterment by trying to end less, probably more like the hippie community that I showed you. And so they have three things that really define them. One, they, they think that to find happiness, you need to eliminate all desire. And listen to these, because maybe you think you have to do this to find contentment. They tried to eliminate all desire. They tried to train themselves to be happy with less. In fact, they said, if you want to make a man happy, add not to his possessions, but take away from his desires. Socrates was one that asked, Uh, Who is the wealthiest man? And he said, it's the one who's content with last, for uh, least, for contentment is nature's wealth. The word that Socrates used for contentment is the exact same word Paul is using in this. A word that culturally meant to be self-made, self-achieved, and self-ahead, and self-content. So Paul's already playing on this mindset that's around him. Secondly, Stoics thought they proposed to eliminate emotion so that uh, man himself could reach a higher plane that would show no emotions towards themselves or to others. There's no reason to cry, they thought, when somebody died because we've reached this higher plane of detachment. In today's society, we might call this detachment or compartmentalization. Uh, we all do it. We all know it's not healthy. Um, we realize that it's also not healthy in finding contentment or happiness. Listen to a stoic in this time frame. He writes, begin with a cup or a household utensil in your house. If it breaks, say, I don't care. Then go into your horse or maybe even your pet dog. If anything happens to it, be able to say, I don't care. Then go into yourself. If you are hurt or you feel injured in any way, say, I don't care. If you go on long enough and if you try hard enough, you'll come to a stage 
when you can watch your nearest and dearest suffer and die and say, I don't care. The stoic aim to find happiness was first to eliminate any kind of desire, secondly, to eliminate any emotion, and the third thing they did was try to eliminate a deliberate act. Uh, everything was the act of God. The Stoics believed that literally nothing could happen which was not the will of God. So in this way, they had to swallow every bitter pill as a gift from God. Now, we do this sometimes too, but it's more Stoic in belief than biblical. In fact, often we'll say, uh, I know you're in a hard uh, kind of hard kind of uh, place right now, a hardship right now, but, but, you know, God allowed this to happen for a reason. Not biblical. That's stoic. There's one big difference, though, around contentment that l- separates the stoics and what Paul's speaking to in contentment here. Even though they use the same word, there's one big difference. The Stoic says, I will learn contentment through my own will. Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who empowers me. For the Stoic, contentment was purely human achievement. For Paul, it was a divine gift. For the Stoic, it was self-sufficient, but for Paul, it was God-sufficient. In learning to be content, we aren't learning to train ourselves to be free of emotion and desire and attachment and, and seeing, having to swallow every bitter pill as a gift from God. What we are doing is learning to allow God to transfer himself to us. William Barclay says, Stoicism failed because it was inhuman. Christianity succeeded because it was rooted in the divine. Paul could face anything because in every situation he had Christ, the man who walks with Christ can cope with anything. My riches are not comforting Jesus is. My debt or my health doesn't define me. Jesus does. This idea of contentment actually shows up time and time again in Paul's letters. Listen to what he writes to Timothy. Yet true godliness with contentment, same word itself, great wealth. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world. And we can take nothing with us when we leave it. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. But people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. But you, Timothy, are a man of God, so run from these evil things. Now, I love this passage Paul uses here, this word here, because he almost says pierces. The same word there is a crucifixion idea that our desires unchecked can be our death penalty. They can crucify us to a cross. On the back of your bulletin, there's a few things that I think we can take away from these two passages that teach us and remind us what it means to be content. I encourage you to flip over your bulletin and fill them in as we just work through them here in closing. First, being gratefully content. Learning to be content and grateful with what we have is always being centered on, centered on Jesus. It is 
the reason for the season. It is the reason for every season that you Being gratefully content is being centered on you. It's also being observant of what desires live in our hearts. Quakers were known for sitting in silence for long times on end because they wanted to be able to see what desires were wrestling in their hearts. It's one of the best ways to be observant of what desires live in our hearts. Being gratefully content is not giving into the love of money and achievement. It doesn't mean we get ourselves away from the emotion of it. It doesn't mean we get rid of the desire for it. It doesn't mean that we get rid of uh, it and say that's the will of God. What it means is that we don't give in to a love of money and achievement. To not give into a love of it. Being gratefully content is being all about taking steps away from everything that distracts us from Jesus. So as we sit kind of in silence like the Quakers did, and we realize, man, I have an unhealthy addiction of collecting this or th- or doing this or being occupied with my emotions, whatever it is, we then have to take steps away from what distracts us from Jesus. Being gratefully content is learning to take steps away. Being gratefully content is also being eager to approach each situation in life. As we read this first passage, I love the way Paul's like, no matter what I'm in, if I'm in a season of want, if I'm in a season of need, it doesn't matter because I have learned the secret of what it means to be content. In other words, I'm eager to jump into that situation because I know how he can transform me by transferring his empowerment to me. Next, being gratefully content is nurturing to uh, being nurturing to your own growth and identity. Find ways to stay in the word. Find ways to write reminders for yourself. Some of you may have uh, seen that I often wear these bracelets. I've worn them for the for, uh, better part of a year now, and, and they are core values that I want to remind my soul of, the things that I want to nurture myself of, things that I know the Lord has given me and spoken to my identity. And so I wear these values that have shaped me so that I can remember to be shaped by them and to be content with them. One of them is to remember the poor. By being gratefully content, I can move into a situation where I'm then gratefully able to help others. And lastly, it's being transformed by the transforming empowerment of God's power or His Spirit. This passage reminds us what contentment should look like for the Christian and for the Christian here. I would encourage you to take time this week and continue to focus on this passage. Maybe even think for a second on when it comes to uh, being gratefully content, where in life do you find yourself easily content? You know what? I don't need a big house. I don't really need to have a mansion. Uh, so I'm going to write there. I'm okay living in a small house. That comes naturally to me. But, but you know what? When I see my friends taking vacation all the time and going away, uh, I find myself discontent. Where do you find yourself discontent? I encourage you to think about this this week because to grow in contentment into an area 
we first have to be willing to name it for ourselves and name it to the Lord. As the worship team comes forward, I leave you again with this quote, with some additions I've made to it. Because we lack a divine center with gratitude, our need for security has led us to an insane attachment to things. Take time in silence this week. Be aware of the desires that are at war in you and go and find a thing that you have been looking for your whole life. Not peppermint like you found, but the meaning of life like Charlie Brown discovered. A divine center in this season and in every situation.